Hello, I'm Jan Marshall and welcome to this Melbourne Business School podcast. Today I'm talking with Mara Olikans, Professor of Management here at Melbourne Business School. Mara teaches negotiations on the part-time MBA program and her research focus is on relational resilience and adversity in negotiation, covering such topics as gender, trust violations and ethics. Her research has been published in leading international journals, including the Journal of Management. Today we're talking about negotiations and the role of information, which is the lifeblood of the negotiation toolkit, if you like. One of the things that negotiators can face is the dilemma in what is revealed and not revealed during the negotiation, and then what the implications of that might be to ethics. Mara, can you start us off on this conversation of this world of negotiation and what people will withhold and what they might reveal? You're right, information is the lifeblood of any negotiation, but negotiators face a dilemma in that it can be used for good intent or bad intent. So we can think of information as a source of power in negotiation. And if I gather more information about you than you have about me, I can use that strategically to build my own outcomes and to worsen your outcomes. If we're using it for good, then I work together with you, sharing information, we're honest with each other, and through that honesty, we come to better understand the needs and interests of both sides, and we can craft um, a, an outcome that works for both of us. So what we're focusing on today really is the dark side of negotiation, which is the occasions on which I decide to not reveal information to you in order to try and gain advantage. And there are two ways that I can go about that. I can choose simply not to reveal information that I know would change how you behave in a negotiation, a sin of omission, or I can choose to strategically misrepresent the situation, a sin of commission, or as we more often refer to it, a lie. The interesting dilemma for negotiators is that even in our very basic negotiated training, we encourage people to withhold specific kinds of information. So we tell them at the start of a negotiation never to reveal what the worst outcome that they accept will be. We discourage them from talking about the alternatives that they have available to them that would enable them to walk from this deal. And so through that advice, we are creating an ethical dilemma because we're positioning negotiators at the start of an ethical slide. And the idea of an ethical slide is that once we've made one small step which is unethical, for example, failing to reveal information or misrepresenting information, it's a lot easier to take the next step. So at the start of the negotiation, I don't tell you what my worst outcome, acceptable outcome is. As the negotiation goes on, I start to tell you things are important to me when they're not, um, because that way I hope you'll make concessions to me. I might tell you that concessions are impossible for me to make um, in the hope that you'll give in to me, whereas I know I could very easily make particular concessions. So what I'm thinking about is what might the context or the scenario be that those deceptions, if you like, be they with withholding information or lying, take place? Is it that a negotiation is very high stakes where deception may play out more highly or does that not matter? Does this happen in any of those small or large negotiations? It can happen in small or large negotiations. Um, I think there are two things at play. The first is some of the external triggers. 
to the negotiation um, and to the decision to deceive. And the second is my assessment of what kind of person you are. So I'll talk a little bit about those more external triggers. Oftentimes, people don't intend to deceive the other person. Oftentimes, when they deceive the other person in negotiation, they're caught out. So it's a spur of the moment decision to try and protect themselves. So particularly if we're not well prepared for our negotiation and we don't anticipate the kinds of questions that the other negotiator might ask, it might turn out that we're asked a question that we can't answer. And rather than saying, I can't answer that, we make up an answer in the spur of the moment to keep the negotiation going along. So perhaps you ask me for information um, about why I need a particular agreement or outcome, but it's information that I can't reveal to you. I might be acting on behalf of someone else. I might have constraints in terms of confidentiality, and I simply cannot tell you even if I wanted to. Um, the best way to handle that, of course, would be to say, I can't for other reasons tell you that, but let, help me to understand why you need that information. Perhaps we can find a way around it. But in the, in the heat of the moment, negotiators seem more inclined to make information up. Um, That's interesting. It is interesting. Um, and it's something that some careful preparation and thinking about the kind of information the other side might need in order to do a deal would help us to avoid. Um, it also turns out that time pressure to reach agreement pushes us towards engaging in deception. Um, in part, that's because time pressure just increases our level of competitiveness in a negotiation, and that is linked to a greater willingness to engage in deception and other unethical actions. So they're the sort of in-the-moment decisions that might push people towards negotiation, but it can be a more strategic decision. So there are three reasons that people might engage in deception. Um, the first is that I'm not really sure about your intentions in the negotiation. So one of the things that I ask myself at the start of a negotiation is, how are you going to treat me? Will you be fair? Um, will you be concerned about my interests? Will you try and help me get a good deal? Or are you really here just to get the best deal you can for yourself and to exploit me? And depending on how I answer that question, I will either be more or less willing to reveal information. So the standard you know, rule of thumb that we give to negotiators is to engage in moral pragmatism. If I'm uncertain about your intentions, if I think there's even the smallest possibility that um, you're going to try and exploit me, then I should withhold information in order to protect myself. Unfortunately, in negotiation, we tend to start from a fairly sceptical position, and so it's very easy for us to conclude that you're, going, you're about to exploit me. So moral pragmatism kind of kicks in. But that is not, unfortunately, the only reason that we engage in deception. There's kind of another um, possibility, which is that I size you up as a soft target. So there's this idea of opportunistic betrayal that I think about the costs and the benefits of engaging in deception. And the question that I might ask myself is, what will happen if you catch me out in a lie? How likely are you to punish me? What costs will I incur in terms of relationship and reputation? And if I decide that the cost is low, so you won't catch me out, or because I think you're a nice person, um, you won't punish me for engaging in deception, then I also go ahead and engage in deception. Um, so it kind of means that both in the worst and the best of circumstances, it's possible for people to engage in deception. And um, we see this more opportunistic kind of approach to deception in relation to groups that are seen to be 
vulnerable. So there's some evidence that um, elderly people and women are more likely to elicit deception in a negotiation. So perceived vulnerability can cause people to be more deceptive. They've already made that choice. What happens when you're on the other side of that? If you're aware as, uh, you know, being part of a vulnerable group, perhaps a minority or as a woman going into that space, that you're aware just by the fact of who you are that you might encounter more deception, what might you do to counter that? So I think you... You know, approach the information you're being given with a little bit more caution and scepticism than you might otherwise, and you probe more carefully what people are telling you. So our best avenue to uncovering deception in negotiation is to, in a sense, interrogate the other person. So when they offer information, we ask them for more detail. And you know, two things that we know about uh, deception are that especially when it's spur of the moment, there's no depth. So if you ask, if someone makes a statement in a negotiation and asserts that something is important to them, just by asking, can you tell me a little bit about why that's important to you, is likely to help you identify whether the person's engaging in deception or not. People who engage in deception often don't have a backup story um, for the reasons that they're not able to give reasons for their requests, they're not able to elaborate on a statement that they've made. And often when they do start elaborating, they start contradicting themselves. So there's a little lack of consistency. That's one avenue is to probe more deeply what people are telling you. I'd like to say that there are a lot of nonverbal cues that would help us, but there turn out not to be a lot of nonverbal cues. Oh, really? Yes, far fewer than we think. And we're also very bad at detecting them. Yes. So, you know, it's 50-50. Um, so chance whether we'll detect them or not. And that holds across you know, everybody. So even people we would expect to be more skilled, such as you know, maybe the police, uh, turn out not to be really any better than the average person. So there are a few cues that we can think about. Um, one is that people who are engaging in deception tend to give shorter answers. Because engaging in deception is often associated with anxiety, you can hear the, uh, the pitch of their voice going up because it's associated with anxiety, sometimes they stumble over their words. So sometimes there are disfluencies in their language. But all of that rests on the assumption that people are anxious. And so an accomplished liar probably is not going to display those signs of anxiety. Also important to remember that a lot of this has to be assessed against the baseline behaviours of the other person. It may be that whenever I talk, my voice rises. In fact, my voice does rise when I talk because I come from South Australia. And we, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that everything I say is a, is a lie. Um, so you need to understand the person to do that. The two most foolproof cues to deception, because they're not under the individual's control, are their blink rate. So people who engage in deception tend to blink more rapidly than those who are telling the truth. And also smiles. So... A genuine smile is something that reaches people's eyes, and so you get a twinkle or a spark in, in the eyes of people who are genuinely smiling and happy, and that twinkle can't be faked. So another way of looking at people's intentions, thinking about people's intentions towards you in a negotiation and assessing whether they're faking pleasantness and liking or not is to look at whether the smile is just really around their mouth or whether it involves their entire face. 
and to back yourself up, having perhaps thought you have seen some of these indicators, is still the, the opportunity to probe a bit further. Exactly. So to back, back yourself or the situation by getting some evidence, if you like. Exactly. Yes. What about the role of emotion in negotiations? Does that have a place in the way or an effect of deception and or the way people operate? It does. So there are two issues with emotion. The first is actually continuing the theme of deception that we've started as researchers to think more about emotion deception. So how negotiators use emotion strategically to get what they want. And we, we now know that negotiators are willing to fake anger. Uh, we know that when we express anger in negotiation, people are more likely to give us concessions um, to try and appease us. And so faking anger can actually be helpful. But also it turns out people are willing to fake happiness and liking. So the other path to influencing someone is to get them to like you. And we can get people to like us by expressing positive emotions and showing that we like them. So we can tell people that, you know, we really enjoy negotiating with them. We think this is like a great relationship. And we hope that by doing that, we um, facilitate the other person making concessions to us and actually kind of moving more in our direction. So kind of a form of influence if it's used strategically. What might you suggest then if you do see anger in a negotiation situation? Uh, again, is that probing or what, what, what's the response to that to perhaps test its truth? So with anger, if it's being used strategically, it turns out that it's usually not possible to de-escalate the anger, that people who are using it strategically are able to continue maintaining sort of high levels of anger. And there's really in the end nothing that you can do that will satisfy them. So one way of probing for strategic anger is actually to try and get the other person to articulate the reasons for their anger and what's kind of driving their unhappiness in the negotiation. It's a little bit harder to test for genuine liking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was interested that anger can be quite easy to sustain. I was wondering about, you know, the role of the actor in that and as you said before it's hard to sustain deception if you've made up a story and it, and you haven't got a secondary story to follow it um, and I, I'm trying to imagine myself sustaining anger uh, so, in those situations. You know, I, I, do an, I do an exercise with my students mm. in which some of them in a negotiation role play are given some very specific instructions about displaying anger and a lot of it is not yelling and screaming. Mm. Um, it can be making threats, it can be you know, engaging in personal attacks, so it's sort of um, just being interpersonally unpleasant in a sense. But they start off quite sceptical, but what, I, what we notice with at least some of them is that they catch that emotion themselves, so they start off role-playing the anger, but they feed off it and eventually they really do become quite angry. So it turns out to be quite a lot easier to sustain anger than we might think. Have you come across someone whom you think is really a skilled negotiator and could you perhaps describe that person or aspects of their behaviour that you would recommend to others? So I think uh, skilled negotiators think about the world in terms of problem solving uh, rather than in terms of being belligerent and aggressive and threatening. So these are people who are who view the negotiation more as a problem-solving exercise, who bring with them an other-oriented concern. So they recognise from the beginning that it's not really about 
just getting their own deal because we must always remember that you know we're in it together and I recently heard Bill Urey who wrote co-wrote co-authored Getting to Yes talking about his most recent work and what I really liked about his new idea is that he talks about the third side so he says yes there is me in the negotiation or the dispute and there is you and these are two distinct sides but there's also us together so the third side and if we remember that it's us together then the way that we approach the situation the dispute or the negotiation is quite different to if we're thinking me versus you and so good negotiators also work on building the relationship and recognize the importance of the relationship to the negotiation uh, presumably genuine in this instance <laughs> in this instance <laughs> yeah yeah, so that can build that sense of us. Where does us take us in negotiation? Do you think that's a different outcome? What is it perhaps a win for both? Or? Yes, yeah. so us takes us to a win for both. Um, a lot of times, particularly novice, inexperienced negotiators struggle with that because the mental model of a negotiation is I get as much as I can for myself and I don't worry so much about you. But the reality in everyday life and in organisational life is that the good negotiations are those where I do worry about you because I understand that my outcome is dependent on yours. Um, and I also recognise that I'm building social currency. Mm. It's not just about the economics of the situation. More and more we recognise that it's about um, the relationship that we have going forward because many of our negotiations are not just one-off negotiations. And it's also about reputational effects. Um, you know, if you walk away from the table and you know, a week later realise that you've been lied to, then my reputation takes a hit, the relationship takes a hit, and I suffer the consequences of it. So Mara, to finish us off, have you got any final thoughts for those of us who are negotiating, you know, in the workplace or everyday life? Because really it's a part of all our lives. It is a part of all our lives. And my final thought is perhaps to proceed with caution. Um, a lot of the research I've done is around the role of trust in negotiation. And when I started my research, I somewhat optimistically believed that if I presented myself as a trustworthy person, then I would reap the benefits of it in a negotiation. You would trust me, you would treat me well, and we would work together. But it turns out that nice negotiators illicit deception. So it can go either way, but we need to be careful about being too trusting. Actually, a saying that comes from Ronald Reagan is trust but verify. So I start with the assumption that you're trustworthy, but nonetheless, I kind of test and I probe what you're telling me, um, not with a deep sense of suspicion, but in order to protect myself. And I monitor the emotions in the negotiation because emotion turns out to be quite a potent trigger of deception. So we know that people who are experiencing anger or anxiety are more likely to engage in deception than people who are happy and optimistic. And that emotion doesn't even need to be the result of what's happening in the negotiation. That we have this idea of emotional spillover um, or incidental emotion, which is that the emotions that I bring with me to the situation will also influence the way that I negotiate. So if something happened um, you know, in the workplace, in my office, 
that has annoyed me and made me angry and then I come to negotiate with you, I'm more likely to engage in deception than if I've just experienced something that makes me kind of feel happy and optimistic. And so the way to deal with that is actually to try and draw attention to the possibility that the emotions that you're experiencing are unrelated to me and to our negotiation. It's a very nice piece of research which is titled, Sorry About the Weather. And um, the idea of it is that simply by drawing attention to your emotional state, but by mentioning the weather, well, I think in Melbourne, sorry about the traffic would be a good gambit as well. Um, it reminds, just rem causes you to pause and reflect for a moment about what the true source of um, the emotion is. And so if I come feeling anxious or stressed or angry, if I'm reminded that it's not because of something that you're doing in the negotiation, it will help the negotiation. Thank you. They're great thoughts to share. Thanks, Mara. If you'd like to hear more on negotiation, be sure to listen to some of our other podcasts or visit our website at mbs.edu.